All right, so today we are talking about crusaders. I don't think we'll get to the reformers today. I think we'll probably quit with the crusades. Um, before we really get into the crusades, what do you guys know about the crusades? Let's ask an easy question. How many are there? Almost, there's, there's 10 official crusades. And that's not in counting the later crusades that go all the way to the 1570s, 1580s. Uh, the official crusades, when we talk about the crusades, there are 10 of them. Um, what is a crusade? Religious war? What? Campaign? You sure can. It's like a drive or a, a push or... Um, When, well, let's go back. Remember we talked about Muslims, the Islamic people? Um, the, uh, between 632 and 732, the Muslims will aggressively threaten the West. They will, remember they're on a drive to conquer the world, physically as well as spiritually and drive out the uh, Christianity and drive out all the other religions and set up Muslim as the the head of this uh, of the religion and um, and so really the the time of the Crusades is really from about 1095 to about 1291 where we talk about this is the crusade period. Now there are going to be other what you will, will be you could call crusades all the way up till 1580s. Um, that's after the time of the reform, uh, reformation. But we don't really count that as the crusade period. Um, so this this is going to be. Um, a chart where, they, where they, they fight against the Muslims, but also against any kind of heretical group that might threaten the Roman Catholic Church. Um, now, if you look at that handout I gave out, sorry for those of you online. Um, I'll put it up on the screen here in just a second. Um, but um, you can see that there are many different groups versus the Slavs, the Muslims, other Christians, um, because it's not just about Christians. Um, now, when we say, like, a crusade, we're going to, we're, so we're talking about a large time period of up to 10, well, 10 or more different crusading moments. Um, they start out as a, as a drive to rid the Muslims and defeat the Muslims, but it's not going to stay there. Um, 
So I guess you could say the whole movement maybe characterizes a holy war against the enemies of the cross by spread of spiritual wisdom, but it's more complicated than that. When you think of the Crusades, where did I put that thing? Um, what do you think of the cause of the Crusades? What, what, what would you say is the cause of the Crusades? Think back about your, your history class, you know, way back when, or yesterday, and you don't remember it. Uh, <laughs> Fractions, like uh, in, in Christianity? Okay, there's a good, that's a good point. Power. That's a good point. All the different groups are striving for power. Now, we can't say that there's any one cause of the Crusades. Um, to lump any war, anything into one, like this is what caused this war, this is what caused that, that thing, is to oversimplify history. I hate oversimplification of history. Um, you know, like, whether we say it's the Crusades or we say, well, it was a religious war and religion caused it, oversimplification. Or we talk about, like, even, like, the Civil War here in the United States where we say, well, slavery caused the Civil War. I hate it when we say slavery caused the Civil War because it was a major factor of it. It was the major factor in it. It was not just the only cause of it. It's so much more rich. History is a rich, complex, complicated machine that everything plays. You got religion and politics and economics and and um, and, and social and, and psychology and and philosophy and all oh, mathematics have been all intertwining to make this wonderful. pattern that uh, that causes for things to end up the way they were so we talk about the crusades the the number one thing we have to say okay the number one thing was it was a religious war it was a religious time period um the um Early on, after the Muslims conquered, they were still allowing Christians to come and make pilgrimage to Jerusalem. It was actually really good for their, uh, their, their tourism. They were making money off the tourists coming to, to pilgrim in Jerusalem. They were, they were having trade. They were having... Um, but then a, a group of, uh, of Turks replaced the Arabs as the primary rulers of the Muslims. And they begin much more brutal and fanatical version of Islam. And uh, they uh, stop the pilgrimages to the Palestine, to the Holy Land. And, and, uh, and so uh, you're going to see that with this stopping, you know, and it also stops trade as well when they can't do it. Because people were going over there and, and getting spices 
and wisdom and 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 trade you know trade is what's happening where inside the lands you know all the beautiful spices of the area and you know who doesn't like saffron and um you know and uh, and curries from india and you know and you got all these wonderful spices that are happening and and um oops drop my cup um but with their the more brutal take on islam they stop all that trade so you got so you also got you got religion going going on the muslims are now fighting against anyone who is not muslim but you also have a, a economic fe- fa- uh, factor. Trade has been stopped. Um, so you got these, and then, you know, as the Muslims, this more aggressive one, they're starting to move, invade into the kingdoms that have been, remember all those, the Holy Roman Empire and, the, uh, you know, all these other, the France and Germany, these, these Italian empires that were established the Muslims are trying to take over those as well. So you have a, a very temporal, the Pope who is over all this at this time. Remember how we talked the Pope was a leader, was the ruler of both temporal and physical and spiritual during a lot of this time period. They're going to see this as a threat for their temporal power and as well as their spiritual power. Um, so we got we got economics going on, you know. Trade has stopped. Famine is common in the Western Europe at this time. There's actually uh, one of those shifts where you know farming is shifting and and people are are making you know like having to change the way they farm and it's moving north and and, and there's all kinds of stuff. So famine's actually going to be quite uh, common. Um, whenever there's famine, you're going to need stimulus. To make people happy, especially for the poor, and a war is a great way to do that. Uh, we saw that here in the United States with the Great Depression coming out of the uh, World War II was a fantastic way for us to get out of the Depression <laughs> um, because it stimulated all this economy, sent poor people overseas. To I mean, it was everyone was hurting, so it was you know. Uh, so there's there's these things going on, um, um, and then on top of that, you have this romanticized of war that has happened. Remember the 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 Roman Empire fell, and largely people are sitting on their farms, working the farms, feudal systems going on, and you have these. Well, knights with no wars to fight and they have this romanticized idea of war which by the way is something you see right before a lot of wars when war becomes romanticized uh, World War One, we had a lot of romanticizing of war these young these people with a, a military adventure um, could be satisfied by the Roman church and they you know so nobles and knights and poor who wanted to make better for themselves and um, you know and some of them um, so some of them uh, joined the crusades to escape domestic burden or even punishment of crimes where the Pope was willing to overlook punishment of crimes if you would join the crusades uh, and one of the number 
draft tools they used was they would uh, give indulgences or uh, promise you into heaven if you would join the Holy Crusade. Uh, remember, the Pope has that kind of authority according to this, this time period in the theology. Um, an indulgence is basically you get to sin and it doesn't count. Um, and the selling of indulgences, we will get to, uh, that's one of the things that it's, uh, Martin Luther had such a problem with uh, in the 1500s. Um, not actually part of Catholic tr uh, canon, though. If you read their laws, this is nothing they have that was actually orthodox, but it was something that they did or, or that they were practicing. Um, so, but yeah, the Pope would promise these kind of things: you know, get out of purgatory uh, or get out of hell free passes if you would join the military and stuff like that. Um, a large number of the people that join the the crusades are actually the poor. That have nothing, you know. They have, you know, and they they and a lot of them are joining because of the re, uh, religious uh, zeal. They want to claim the land for God. Um, Now, the direct, what we call, cause of the First Crusade was an appeal by Urban II at the Synod of Clermont in November of, of 1095, which he, uh, to launch a crusade against the Muslims. He urged the crusade as an answer to Alex's uh, appeal for aid, but in Urban's mind, the grander concept of rescuing the holy place from the Muslims' hands took priority over aid to the Eastern Empire. Um, the assembled grand, uh, crowd, mostly Frenchmen, replied with, uh, Deuce volt, uh, God wills it. They yelled, God wills it. As they, they said, this is God's will. Now, when they organize, um, you know, well, the the youth, uh, it was it was so great that the masses of peasants, aroused by the preaching, uh, uh, will um, will march through Germany, Hungary, and the Balkans in 1096 to Palestine. God wills. Now, in Christianity, there's no place really for um, a holy war. That kind of theology was not really there. I know we can point to the Old Testament and say, well, well here's an example of, you know, holy war. And they did do that. But there's no actual holy war theology at this time period. Um, so they call it a pilgrimage, actually. It was a pilgrimage to the Holy Land to make it and you to, to get there you had to use force to get there. Um, this will shift about the I want to say it's the fourth crusade where they kind of developed this idea that it doesn't have to be just for religious purposes but uh, 
in the first one, it is labeled as a pilgrimage that you're making with military might to get you to the Holy Land. Um, now these penniless, uh, the, the, these these peasants, they you know that were marching through Germany, Hungary, and the Balkans in 1096. Uh, they were unorganized, undisciplined. Um, they were massacred by the Turks or taken into slavery. Um, now, that was really kind of only a prelude to the efforts of the First Crusade. Um, now, um, if we're looking at this map here, um, this area here is the Christian lands. And I use that term loosely. I don't really care for that term. It's like saying the United States is Christian. Um, I don't really care for it. If the people aren't Christian, then, um, then it's not Christian land. You know, this cannot be a Christian cup. That is not, that's not how it works. Even though you can buy, you know, Christian underwear online. It's not how it works. Um, it's for us. So to say this is, but this is where the Pope had power at the time. And so it was known as the Christian lands. Now, people in there were of multiple religions. Christians was the primary religion at the time. Uh, but there were Christians down in this area, too, who were living in secret because they otherwise they'd be killed. Um, and over here as well, there were missionaries that had gone over this way. But we say it's the Christian land because this is the area that the Pope had control. Um, so this is Christian land. This down here, this, this area here is the Muslim-controlled territory. Um, once again, I use that term because there are not all just Muslims down there. You know, it's the Muslim-controlled area. It's a Christian-controlled area, the Muslim-controlled area. Um, and this is really the area that they're, they begin fighting over is right here. Um, the First Crusade um, goes by land over this way and down into these areas here. Uh, of course, I put all the uh, dates and stuff in the notes on the app if you want to write those down. But um, the effort of the, the First Crusade was led by nobles from France and Belgium and, and Normandy, uh, Norman Italy. As uh, various armies, they 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 arrive, they arrived at Constantinople. That's Constantinople right there. Constantinople is important because unless you're going by boat, that's the passing place between the east and the west. There are mountain ranges, the Black Sea, a lot of snow. This is the point where the trade happens in Constantinople. This is the dividing point between the East and the West. So they arrive in Constantinople in 1097, um, and they will f fight 
um, they will they will um, um, by the fall they're actually going to find themselves before Antioch, um, and which they will capture in the spring of 1098. In 1099, I have it written down, June 15th, that's the date. June 15th, they conquer Jerusalem. Christians take back Jerusalem in the first crusade. Um, and this, the liberation of Jerusalem and the, uh, creates a feudal state, um, and it creates a feudal state See, the crusaders who had been feudal lords back in Europe decide that they're going to continue that feudal system in Jerusalem. And um, many castles in the near, and they, they set up castles and stuff in that time period to set up a feudal system. Um, and it will be organized into the kingdom of Jerusalem under Godfrey of uh, Bullion, who had been the moral leader of the Crusades, and um, so they're going to set up this time. And the Knights Templars and the Hospitallers were there; would be there to provide protection for those who are making um, pilgrimages. Well, the Knights Templars, an interesting organization. Um, Knights Templars are the Christian side on the Hasim, where assassins would be on the um, Islamic side. The history of the of the Templars, um, very fascinating history. Um, I've decided not to get too much into the, the history of the Templars because um, I think it would sidetrack us. But if you're interested in that, go read a book. It's fascinating. Uh, they were not only the military might, but also the bankers. And and if you like Disney movies, they're the keepers of hidden treasures. <laughs> um but um, yes. Oh, I just read a book. There's actually one I really like, uh, but I can't remember who wrote it off the top of my head. It was, um, I think it was called Templars versus the Assa versus Assassins. And um, but there's a thousand books out there on 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 the Knight Templars. They have captivated the mind and imagination of people everywhere. And um, the Knights Templars, well, like, I don't want to get too much into the history of them because then I get into areas, um, have largely died, largely died out. There is still, you can, you can still become a Knights Templar, though they're a secret organization that, uh, um, that uh, Brad showed the, uh, that's similar to the Masons, the Freemasons, um, that are um, out there. James Wasserman's. That's the one. Thank you. I knew I. 
Yes, that was a fascinating book. Um, James Wasserman. I want to say Dan Jones does a book on this subject around this time period too, though I might be wrong. Dan Jones is one of my favorite historians. He writes some fantastic books. Um, but um, yeah, so I mean, yeah. So I, we'll stay away from the Knights Templars, and the, but. Um, but they're going to be there to provide protection, to become the bankers, to um, control things, to, you know, depends on how much of a Knights Templar uh, fan you are. If you follow all the conspiracy theories, they really became powerhouse. Um, though I'm going to stick more uh, what we can prove, <laughs> uh, which is very little of what what the, the, the secret organization claims. Um, so, um, though, I do have a friend who is a Knights Templar in the secret organization, and he can't tell me much because it's a secret organization. Yeah, um, he's, a, he's a Knights Templar and a Freemason. And, uh, um, he's not allowed to tell me anything, which always bothered me. It's like, I don't want to join an organization where I can't know what I'm believing until after I believe, until after I join it. That, that always bothered me. Uh, that's why I never joined anything like that. It's like I, no. If I'm going to sign the sign up, I want to know what it's what I'm, what I'm signing up for. Um, but um, yeah. Um, but, yeah, but he has told me some things about it, so. Um, but anyways, so the first crusade was largely to conquer Jerusalem. Now, the second crusade was because Muslims were a threat to the northeastern flank of the kingdom um, of Jerusalem and... Um, and after uh, they were, the Muslims wanted to take back Jerusalem. And in 1146, the 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 mystic Bernard of Clairvaux, in his preaching, uh, instigated and promoted a second crusade. And the King of France and his Emperor of the Holy Roman Empire led the crusade. But it was a failure. Um, Saladin, the, the guy we know as Saladin, that's not his full name. Um, the guy we know as Saladin reconquers Jerusalem in 1187. Which set us up for the Third Crusade. <laughs> Uh, known as the King's Crusade. Now, the Third Crusade is in 1189 to 92. Um, it was under the leadership of Philip of Augustus of France and Richard of England and Emperor Frederick. Um, the Third Crusade, if you watch that, um, what was that Robin Hood with uh, Kevin Costner in it? King Richard and all that, that would have been during the Third Crusade. Richard of England. 
Um, um, maybe the fourth, but probably the third. Um, the third crusade, the King's Crusade, uh, Richard England and Emperor Frederick the first. Uh, they uh, Frederick actually will drown on his way to Palestine. Uh, Philip of Augustus, uh, after a quarrel with Richard, goes home. So Richard is left there fighting. England is left fighting the crusade by himself. And that's why it's the King's Crusade and it's the English um, time period. Uh, this is when that Robin Hood story would have been taking place. Um, in September of 1191, uh, Richard's de forces defeat those of Saladin in the Battle of Arsuf, and uh, it'll actually only be the tr the only true battle of the of the Third Crusades. The rest of them, uh, not really true battles. Um, they capture the the from the recaptured city of Jaffa. Richard established the Christian control over some of the regions and approached Jerusalem. But though he refused to lay siege on the holy city, he does not want to lay siege to the holy city. Um, in September 1192, Richard and Saladin will sign a peace treaty that established the kingdom of Jerusalem through without the city of Jerusalem, uh, but it doesn't have the city of Jerusalem. Uh, that ended the Third Crusade. Um, although he was unsuccessful in recapturing Jerusalem, um, Saladin agreed to give him pilgrims access to Jerusalem so they can enter in for pilgrimages. Um, forced to be content with this, Richard actually goes back home to England. So you see some kind of peace treaty with Saladin there, and the people are allowed to start making pilgrimages again, which is why they said they started this anyway. Um, Innocent III, who becomes Pope, now he's anxious to, re, uh, to retrieve the failure of the Third uh, Crusade, so he, um, he, he sets up for a Fourth Crusade. I know the fourth one is actually kind of the weird one. Uh, the fourth one, the idea was to capture Egypt as a base of operation against Palestine. Um, and, a, and, and a result of this crusade was that Greek culture and the Eastern Empire were again made subject to the Pope from 1204 to 1261. By capture of Constantinople in April of 13 or 1204, so after 150 years of independence... This area is now under the control of the Pope again. That's going to weaken the Eastern Empire and deepen the hatred between the Latin and the Greek area of the world. So it's really going to see, the, you're going to really see this, um, this deepening of hatred between the Orthodox and the Catholics at, the, the, at, the time, at this time period. The Latins and the Greeks. Uh, because they'll be forcing themselves on there. Um, now, throughout the... the uh, now, this will um, also crusade, because they conquer Egypt and put down largely Christians to reconquer that Greek area, 
it also sets up this mindset that no longer is just about pilgrimages. We can fight for more than just holy reasons. And so you're going to see a shift after this where they're not just fighting for religious Muslims. They're going to be fighting anyone who stands in their way. Uh, so it's definitely going to put a shift in there. Um, and the, the remainder of the 13th century, you're going to see a lot of crusades um, that were not aimed to topple the, the Muslim Holy Land, but to combat anyone as seen as enemies of the Christian faith. Um, which includes the Albigese Crusade in 1208 to 1229, aimed to root out the heretical uh, Cathari or Albigene sect of Christianity in France. Um, also the um, Children's Crusade, which took place in 1212. Um, anyone ask, want to guess why it's called the Children's Crusade? Anyone heard about this? This is left out of history books a lot. I wonder why. Thousands of young children vowed to march to Jerusalem. Um, it's, most historians don't regard it as an actual crusade. Um, and a lot of experts question whether the group really comprised of children. But they never reached the Holy Land. But according to the stories, at least, the crusade of 12... 12, the Children's Crusade cons uh, consisted of about 100,000 teens and younger. The French group led uh, by Stephen, age 12, went to Rome, and German groups led by Nicholas across southern years went to Marseille. War, hunger killed many. Most of the rest become slaves. The average age, according to the story, the, gr the, the history, the group, was 12. Um, that crusade or pilgrimage, I guess you could call it, ended uh, with the fall of Acre in 1291 to the Muslims. That's the city right there. Um, and so many of these, if the story is true and the historians sometimes question it, but if the story is true, then uh, a lot of children died went, uh, or were taken into slavery in this crusade or pilgrimage. Um, the official fifth crusade um, put into motion by Pope Innocent III before his death in 1216 attacked Egypt from both land and sea and forced surrender of Muslim uh, but were forced to surrender to Muslim defenders led by Saladin's nephew in 1221. In 1229, the Sixth Crusade, Emperor Frederick II um, achieved a peaceful transfer of Jerusalem to Crusaders um, with negotiations, um, though when the 
the peace treaty expires, the Muslims will quickly take that land back. Um, the Seventh Crusade, yeah, it's kind of getting repetitive, isn't it? The Seventh Crusade from 1248 to 1254, Louis IX of France organized the crusade against Egypt. Why Egypt? Because they're attacking this way. They're selling across the Mediterranean and going this way. Um, Egypt is a stronghold for the Muslim people um, at this time period. And... Um, there's a battle, one battle, and that's the Seventh Crusade, and it's a failure. And they go, they have to tell, turn around and with their tails, tuck behind their legs, and go home. Um, the Muslim people around this time period are going to go through a new dynasty change. Where Saladin's not going to believe, but a, a Mamluk, um, descendants of former slaves of the Islamic a Empire, will take power in Egypt. And in 1260, the Mamluk forces in Palestine will halt the advance of the Mongols, who are invaded, who are invading, led by Genghis Khan and his descendants. You don't realize that's going on at the same time. Genghis Khan is attacking over yonder off this map. And the Islams are going to put him down. The Genghis Khan. When we think about this time, all this is going on at the same time. We often forget that this is, there's a large world out there. Lots of history is overtwining. Um, we haven't talked about Genghis Khan at all because he has nothing to do with our church history. So... <laughs> um, Fascinating time period, though. Um, but because of these, these they are going to uh, emerge. At these um, Genghis Khan and his descendants are actually going to be allied with the Christians at some points, and the Islam are going to defeat them, um, even though they're not Christians themselves. But they will. Um, be um, allies in the fight against the Muslims. Um, the Eighth Crusade in 1270 um, will because the Mamluks demolish Antioch in 1268 and uh, Louis the Ninth will will try to defend, will try to take the city back. Um, Lewis will die there in, um, in Tunis. Um, in 1271, um, which Edward I of England will um, take on another expedition. We kind of throw that one in with the seventh, the Eighth Crusade, even though they're happening at two different areas and they're not organized. We kind of throw them together. Um, 
sometimes referred as the Ninth Crusade. Um, he will attack the uh, Holy Land uh, to take away, but he'll accomplish very little. And um, it will be considered the last significant crusade to the Holy Land. The official last crusade in 1291, um, it's this city right here, Acre, um, is have the, the Crusaders are holding the city. It's the last city of its kind in the area that the Crusader cities, Christians are holding. And um, it will fall to the Muslim Mamluks. And uh, many historians kind of believe this is the, the mark where the, Christi the, the Crusader state and the Crusaders themselves have been defeated. Um, So, um, so that really kind of marks the, the, the that's all ten crusades in very short time. Um, yes, I could have gone in a lot more detail, but I thought I'd lose you. Um, the consequences of the crusade. Think back about your history. What kind of things do you think was accomplished by this crusade these crusades good or bad mm, absolutely as people come in contact with one another it forces people to spread Christianity is spread, Muslim spread, ideas are spread. Um, a lot of historians, though I have read many that argue against this, um, Eric learning science and literature was brought to the Western Europe and studied by the scholastics, um, which was they tried to synthesize with the Christian revolution. Um, I'm actually reading... Uh, God, what's that book I'm reading right now? Um, Name of the Rose, is that what it's called? See, I'm having one of those moments. I'm plenty old enough. I'm reading three books of the Name of the Rose by Umberto Eco. Um, I'm reading four books at the moment. I can forget one's name. Um, the Name of the Rose, and it was written in 1980, I think, something like that. And, uh, and he, one of the main characters, it's kind of like uh, a friar meets uh, Sherlock Holmes. Um, and, uh, but he makes a lot of the arguments from the Arabic scholastic mentality that this is one of the things that's come out of the Crusades. Because the time period of this book is taking place is in the 1300s. Um, so anyways, um, but so yeah, so a lot of people argue that, that it brought new, um, new thought and new religion and syncretism. What's that word syncretism mean? Blending, joining, syncing up. Um, 
But other things happen too. Uh, feudalism, they know that system of government that we were talking about where you have the feudal lords and the, this will actually be weakened because many knights and nobles who went to the crusades never come back. Um, so many of the, the um, them sell their lands to the peasants or the wealthy middle class uh, to raise money for the crusades. So you have a weakening of this type of government uh, through the Crusades. Uh, cities controlled by the feudal lords were often unable to buy or charter uh, charters, providing them with uh, so with self gover uh, self government. So uh, a lot of them were starting to govern themselves instead of having someone else over them. Um, kings were able to centra centralize their control with the aid of the middle class. So you're having less feudal lords and more kings set up uh, who favored, because the middle class favored a strong centralized nation, national state under a monarchy in order to provide a condition of security because they, they needed security for business purposes. So the feudal lords will fall away and you'll have a, a strengthening of a, a monarchy again. Um... Religious results. Um, now, during the Crusades itself, the Pope will have a lot of prestige. We talked about that last week, how the prestige of the Popes was raised and they were controlling and they were... They were. Now, um, eventually, though, as the Crusades ends, it actually weakens papal power. As the... Um, Uh, as as they, they the rise of nationalism instead of Christianity based, they each country will start rising in its own. Kings are starting to establish the feudalist system is going away. Kings are starting to be established as the power. And nationalism was starting to establish. You know, German, French, Belgium, are starting to develop a a nationalistic viewpoint. So they're the papacy. They're not just knowing themselves as Christian. They're knowing themselves as French. Knowing themselves as Germans or Holy Roman and Byzantine, and so they're starting to know themselves. So, Pope is losing power. Um, but, um, yeah, so you have, um, so you have weakening of the Pope power, you have um, a deepening religious antagonism between the East and the West. Um, the Eastern Kingdom will eventually fall in 1453 and it was because the because that comes out of this area, er, this, this religious hatred. Um, after the Crusade period, they realized that force isn't going to be the answer, so they're going to start dealing with technique and religious argument. So you're going to see more evangelism and um, defense of the faith. Missionaries go out into Muslim countries out after the crusade period because they realize force isn't the answer. Uh, missionaries, they go, they learn, they learn the Arab language, literature, and culture, and they, they train. Um, 
actually, uh, you know, they were, uh, some of them were martyred in, in North Africa, you know, as they were witnessing to the, the Muslims. Um, economic um, results. Um, trade in luxury from the Near Eastern silks, spices, perfumes, all this, all of this stuff, this list, economic prosperous after the, because they, they form a peace treaty and they eventually start, you know, stop trying to kill each other, um, lays the ground for the, uh, the Italian Renaissance. Um, which is an important time period in our history. Um, so yeah, so those are the Crusades in here. And I do have a small video to watch that will take up the rest of the time. Do we have any questions? All right, this is about a 12-minute video. Put us about two minutes over. We can do it. I got this off of YouTube. <laughs> Hi there, my name is John Green. This is Crash Course World History, and today we're going to talk about the Crusades. Oh, Stan, do we have to talk about the Crusades? I hate them. Here's the thing about the Crusades, which were a series of military expeditions from parts of Europe to the eastern coast of the Mediterranean. The real reason they feature so prominently in history is because we've endlessly romanticized the story of the Crusades. We created the simple narrative of Francis and his four and Henry the Fifth, and it's been endlessly idealized by the likes of Sir Walter Scott and
you can find them today. Oh, it's Animal Crackers. Thanks for Hi there, Animal Crackers. It's me, John Green. Thanks for being delicious, but let me throw out a crazy idea here. Maybe foods that are already delicious do not need the added benefit of being food in nutrition. I mean, why can't I get my kid animal spinach or animal sweet potato or even animal cooked animal? I mean, you can put a man on Mars, but we can't make spinach cooked like elephants? You can put a man on Mars? Stupid world always disappointing me. That's just it. Yeah. One last minute to dispel the crusades were not an example of early European colonization of the Middle East, even if they did create some European kingdoms there for a while. That's a much later post and anti-colonialist view that comes at least in part from the Marxist view of this. In the case of the Crusades, it was argued that knights who weren't adventuring in the Levant were the second and third sons of wealthy nobles who, because of European inheritance rules, had will to the forward be by staying in Europe and lost the game in terms of plunder by going to the East. Foolish theories, though, but it's not true. First, most of the people who responded to the call for Crusades weren't knights at all. They were poor people. And secondly, most of the nobles who did go crusading were lords of the state, not their wasteful kids. But more importantly, that analysis ignores religious motivation. These approaches are looking at historical phenomena, thinking about how, for instance, the capricious environment of Mesopotamia led to a capricious cadre of Mesopotamian gods. But just as the world shapes religion, religion also shapes the world. And some modern historians might ignore religious motivations, but medieval crusaders sure as hell didn't. I mean, when people came up with that idiom, they clearly thought hell was for sure. To the crusaders, they were taking up arms to protect Christ and his kingdom. And what better way to show your devotion to God than putting a cross on your feet, spending five to six times your annual income to outfit yourself and all your horses, heading to the Holy Land. So when these people cried out, God wills it, to explain their reasons for going, you could do them the favor of believing. And the results of the first crusade seemed to indicate that God had willed it, calling the need of roving preachers with names like Peter the Rabbit, Peter the Hermit, and always making history less cool fallen preachers like Peter the Hermit, thousands of peasants and nobles alike volunteered for the first crusade. It got off to kind of a rough start because pilgrims kept robbing those they'd encounter along the way. Plus, there was no real leader, so there were constant rivalries between nobles about who could supply the most troops. Notable among the notables were Godfrey of Bouillon, Bohemond of Toronto, and Raymond of Toulouse. But despite the rivalries and the disorganization, the crusaders were remarkably, some would say miraculously, successful. By the time they arrived in the Levant, they were fighting not against the Seljuk Turks, but against Fatimid Egyptians who had captured the Holy Land from the Seljuks, thereby making the Turks none too pleased with the Egyptians. At Antioch, the Crusaders reversed a seemingly hopeless situation where the peasants found the spear that had pierced Christ's side hidden under a church, thereby raising morale enough to win the day. And then they did the impossible. They took Jerusalem, securing it for Christendom and famously killing a lot of people in the now, the Crusaders succeeded in part because the Turkish nobles, who were Sunnis, did not step up to help the Egyptians who were Sunnis. But that kind of complicated inter-Islamic rivalry gets in the way of the awesome narrative. The Christians just saw it as a miracle. So by 1100 CE, European nobles held both Antioch and Jerusalem as Latin Christian kingdoms. I say Latin to make the point that there were lots of Christians living in these cities before the Crusaders arrived. They just weren't Catholic. They were Orthodox. We're going to skip the Second Crusade because it bores me and move on to the Third Crusade because it's the famous one. Broadly speaking, the Third Crusade was a European response to the emergence of a new Islamic power, neither Turkish nor Abbasid. The Egyptians, although he was really heard, Sultan Amalik al-Nasser Salah al-Din Yusuf, better known to the West as Saladin. Saladin, having consolidated his power in Egypt, sought to expand by taking Damascus and eventually Jerusalem, which he did successfully because he was an amazing general. Jerusalem caused Pope Gregory VIII to call for a third crusade. 
Series. Here are the most important team leaders answered the call. Philip Howard the Chief of the Seconds of France, Richard Lionheart the First of England, and Frederick Ironborn to drown anticlimactically on the journey while trying to bathe in a river, Barbarossa of the not holy, not Roman, and not inferior Holy Roman Empire. Both Richard and Thaddeus were great generals who earned the respect of their troops, and while from the European perspective the Crusades was a failure because they didn't take Jerusalem, it did radically change crusading forever by making Egypt the target. Richard understood that his best chance to take Jerusalem involved first taking Egypt, but he couldn't convince any crusaders to join him because Egypt had a lot less religious value to Christians than Jerusalem. So Richard was forced to call off the crusade early, but if he had just hung around until Easter of 1192, he would have seen Saladin die. And then Richard probably could have fulfilled all his crusading dreams, but you know, then we wouldn't have needed the fourth crusade. Although crusading continues through the 14th century, mostly with an emphasis on North Africa and not the Holy Land, the fourth crusade is the last one we'll focus on because it was the crazy one. Let's get into politics. So a lot of people volunteered for the fourth crusade, more than 35,000, and the generals didn't want to march them all the way across to Napoleon because they knew from experience that it was A, dangerous, and B, hot. So they decided to go by boat, which necessitated the building of the largest naval fleet in Europe the Venetians built 500 ships, but then only 11,000 crusaders actually made it down to Venice because, like, oh, I meant to go, but I had a thing come up, etc. There wasn't enough money to pay for those boats, so the Venetians made the crusaders a deal. Help us capture the rebellious city of Zara, and we'll ferry you to Anatolia. This understood problematic crusading-wise because Zara was a Christian city, but the crusaders agreed to help, resulting in the Pope excommunicating both them then, after the Crusaders failed to save Zar and were still broke, a would-be Byzantine emperor named Alexius III promised the Crusaders that he would pay them if they helped him out. So he excommunicated Catholic Crusaders, fought on behalf of the Orthodox Alexius, who soon became emperor in Constantinople. But it took Alexius a while to come up with the money he promised the Crusaders, so they were waiting around in Constantinople. And then Alexius was suddenly dethroned by the author he named Warsawless, leaving the Crusaders stuck in Constantinople with no money. Christian warriors couldn't bear their back to large Assyrian Christendom, could they? Well, it turns out they could, and boy, did they. They took all the wealth they could find, killed and raped Christians as they went, stole the statues and horses that now adorn St. Mark's Cathedral in Venice, and retook exactly none of the Holy Land. Thanks, Alexander. So you'd think this disaster would discredit the whole notion of crusading, right? No. Instead, it legitimized the idea that crusading didn't have to be about pilgrimage, which any enemies of the Catholic Church were fair game. Also, the Fourth Crusade pretty much doomed the Byzantine Empire, which never really recovered. Constantinople, a shadow of its former self, was conquered by the Pope in 1453. So ultimately, the Crusades were a total failure at establishing Christian kingdoms in the Holy Land. And with the coming of the Ottomans, the region remained solidly Muslim, as it's mostly is today. And the Crusades didn't really open up lines of communication between the Christian and Muslim worlds because those lines of communication were already open. Plus, most historians now agree that the Crusades didn't bring Europe out of the Middle Ages by offering its contacts with the superior intellectual consciousness of the Islamic world. In fact, they were a tremendous drain on Europe's resources. For me, the Crusades matter because they remind us that the medieval world was fundamentally different from us. The men and women who took up the cross believed in the sacrality of their work in a way that we often can't even conceive of. And when we focus so much on the heroic narrative or the anti-imperialist narrative or all the political infighting, we can lose sight of what the Crusades must have meant to the Crusaders, how that journey from pilgrimage to holy war transformed their faith and their lives. And ultimately, that exercise of empathy is the coolest thing about studying history. Thanks for watching.
Crash Course is produced and directed by Stan Muller. Our script supervisor. I like Crash Course History. He's online, YouTube. Uh, I discovered him while he was on uh, Khan Academy, uh, which is a, an app you can use to help you learn stuff. I know they're using it in school. I, I personally, I think they ruined that app when they started making it for school. Uh, it was a lot more fun when it was made geared towards adults learning stuff, and then they, <laughs> uh, then they, they ruined it, in my opinion. But now it's just used in school, and kids hate it. So. Um, <laughs> Um, anyway, so that, that was the Crusades in, 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 a, in a nutshell. Uh, next week, we're going to talk about reform that will happen, um, monastic reform as, as some things begin to change, and military reforms, and um, yeah, philosophical reforms. Anyway, so that's where we'll be at um, next week as we get ready to, to talk more about the Middle Ages still. We've still got a long ways before we get to the, the, the modern age. So, <laughs> All right. Um, any questions, comments? All right. Let's pray us out of here. Father God, we just praise you today, Lord. We thank you for this wonderful blessing. Lord, we pray that you just bless us as we fellowship and just uh, pray that uh, you help us to focus in on you and um, learn from our past mistakes and, and, and move forward with your grace and, and, and learn from our past uh, successes that we may follow after that. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.